right now, just trying to go through a couple things uh, because, you know, everything's perfectly normal in the world that we live in. Uh, everything is just, everything is fine. We're all fine here. How are you? Can you name that movie? Anybody? I know Isaac can't. Anyway, that's from Star Wars. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. So there's nothing weird happening. There's no weird things happening politically. There's no weird things happening culturally. Everything is just running along status quo. As a result, uh, I just have felt that um, we need to look at a couple different topics in January. And and we've been talking about, uh, last week we talked about having uh, our anchor sunk deep uh, in the Scripture and that uh, we really, really need to be people of the Bible. Uh, in, and if we are not, we will be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Today, I want to talk about, a, a, I want to address an issue that I'm, that I'm feeling and seeing all over the place, and it's the issue of hope. Specifically, the issue of, I feel like I don't have much hope for the future. Everything feels so tumultuous and so wild and so unprecedented in so many different directions. Don't know what's going to happen. And so people feel a lack of hope. Now, people feel a lack of hope all the time and for various reasons. So this, this applies and this sermon applies all the time, but I, this morning it's going to be specific to the feeling, I'm addressing the feeling that a lot of people have that things are so messed up and they're going to get more messed up to such a degree that, they, that it feels like what's the sense in even looking forward to the future? That is not an uncommon feeling right now. There's a lot of that going around. So I want to read and establish what hope is biblically. And we've talked about this a lot. Let's read Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Notice that grace trains us to do things. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. What is biblical hope primarily? Biblical hope primarily is the hope that we have in Christ where He has redeemed us, He has set us apart, His own people that are zealous for good works, and it's called here in Titus that in verse 13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A couple theological things have been said here. One, Jesus is called God, just to throw that in there for the sake of the Trinity. And two, we are waiting And it's called a blessed hope, this waiting. It is a blessed hope to wait for the appearing of the glory of God. We are looking forward, we are hoping forward to His appearing. 
And we are doing so, and it, Titus said, uh, that we are doing this while living godly lives in this present age. So we are here, and we are looking forward to the appearing of Jesus Christ, the second coming. And this is really important. That biblical hope, the anchor of our souls, is what Hebrews calls it, this hope that we have in Christ is what anchors us in this present age to say, this place is not my home. I have a future that is in Christ, that is eternal, and that is forever, and it was made possible by His death, burial, and resurrection. I belong to Him. This is not my home. Now, there are a lot of implications in there. I don't know if you hear them or not. But for the Christian, if this is not my home, then why am I so worried about my home here? Do you see that implication? If this is not my home, that I am here temporarily waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of God through Jesus Christ, if I'm waiting for that and and I'm acknowledging that my real home and my real citizenship, according to Philippians, is in heaven, I am a citizen of heaven, if that's the case, then why am I so worried about the here and now? Well, there's a simple answer. It's because you're a human and because because we are living in what's called the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God, we, there is a present tense reality that I belong to Jesus, but I'm still here. And tomorrow I have to go to work. Well, I don't have to go to work because I work for a place that doesn't work on Mondays. But uh, on Martin Luther King Jr., it's a federal holiday. I don't have to go to work tomorrow. But some of you, uh, bless your hearts, will have to go to work tomorrow, right? So... you have to also go buy Raisin Bran at some point, right? I mean, Raisin Bran or Wheat Chex or whatever cereal. I'm naming the cereals I like. I don't know what you like. You've also got to pay utility bills. And your wife is annoying. Or vice versa, your husband is annoying. And you've got issues and you've got things. And you've got children and you've got life and you've got... My knees don't work the way that they used to. I was working outside all day yesterday, and I noticed uh, about three hours in that I was done. And normally, I would not; it would not be over that quick. But as I get older, it, my knees and going up and down the hill at my farm doesn't work. Like it's, I've got stuff going on in my life. I feel the present reality of this world, and not only that but the temptations of sin to do things that I don't want to do. And and not only that, the anxieties that I know that I shouldn't have, I still have them. And Jesus told me not to. Does everybody relate to this? Of course we do. This This is the human condition, but the Bible is this lamp, this beacon that is shining out saying, this is what the Christian should be doing. And so it's something that I grab onto. Like if I was being sucked out to sea in, a, in an undertow current and I could grab a hold of something so I would not be sucked out into the sea and drown, I am doing that with Scripture to show me what am I supposed to be doing as a Christian? How am I supposed to be living? And this is telling me 
that God's grace has come. It's training me to live. So God's helping me to live the right way. And in the middle of that, I'm waiting for this blessed hope, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Biblical hope is I'm in a present tense reality of sin and the world, but I am looking forward with eager expectation for the coming of Jesus Christ. Either when I die and I go and be with Him, or when He splits the sky and returns with the shout of an archangel and a trumpet blast. Remember that sermon a couple weeks ago? During Advent? He's coming back. So the Christian is in a position of looking forward. But the Christian is also in a position of living here. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. I just want to round this out just a little bit. What biblical hope looks like. Romans 8.23 Talking about the whole creation is groaning under the pains of childbirth, that's in verse 2, waiting. There's something, we're groaning and we're waiting. Like a woman ready to give birth. You know what the hope of birth is, is the baby. You're looking forward to it. You know something's happening. The belly starts getting bigger. And then towards the end of the pregnancy, there's more and more signs, more and more signs, more and more signs. And then at a time that you don't know, the baby's coming. Okay. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, this is verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We do not yet see the appearing of the glory of God. We do not yet see the return of Christ. We are hoping for it. We are looking forward to it. And this is our posture as Christians every single day. And if you're looking for some real quick practical application, if you are surrounded and drowning in anxiety, this is something you can go to every single day, no matter what, and praise God that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is something you can go to every single day and say, everything's falling apart, my marriage is falling apart, my body's falling apart, my mind is falling apart, my money is falling apart, I've lost my job, I've this and that and this, and you just insert every terrible thing you can think of, and at the bottom of that list is one gigantic, bright, shining sun of hope and glory. I am going to heaven. This is not my home. This is temporary. In fact, just scooch on up to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, yes, there is suffering. Yes, there are problems. 
Yes, there are major malfunctions in the world. But the suffering we experience is nothing compared to where we are headed. This truth has sustained Christians throughout history. Christians who were enslaved. Christians who were imprisoned. Christians who were tortured for their faith have hung on to verses like this and said, the suffering of this present age is not worth comparing to what God is bringing my way through Christ. How did they get burned at the stake and sing hymns? How did they do that? Because they believed this was true. If you if you read the Fox's book of Christian Martyrs, how many of you have heard of that book? If you read that and you read one of the fascinating things you find out is, is just the overflow of hope mingled with fear. I was listening to a letter that was written by um, William Tyndale who was... Uh, killed for translating the Bible into English. And he was writing a letter to a fellow prisoner. And in his letter, it's just paragraph after paragraph of encouragement and doctrine. You would not think this was like a last rites letter. But it, but it was. And at the very end of the letter, he says, if you are afraid that you will deny Christ under torture and the threat of death, because he was dying the next day. If you're afraid of that, pray that God will give you the grace, and He will. Or, pray that God just ends your life quick. You don't find too many devotional books that sound like that, do we? You don't find too many uh, sermons that sound like that. But, church, please hear me. That is the rock of faith that's not based on testosterone. It is not based on anything other than the grace of God that William Tyndale said, pray that God's grace would either sustain you to hold out through the torture or that you die quick. Didn't even pray for deliverance from prison. God calls us to believe His Word and to have hope in Him And one of the beacons to a dark and dying world is seeing Christians who are not asserting themselves and asserting their rights and asserting that they are something, but seeing Christians who in humility are suffering and yet hopeful, filled with hope and with faith that God is the sustainer of their life. And that hope is not necessarily that you will be delivered from death and from prison. That hope is, when I die, I go to heaven. I am secure in the hands of my Master, Jesus Christ. Nothing can snatch me out of His hands. Therefore, if I die, I die and I go to be with Him. Hope is incredibly powerful when you have it rooted and anchored in Christ. That means nothing can take it away from you. Nothing. What will separate us from the love of Christ? Famine, nakedness, persecution, sword, no, and all these things. We are more than conquerors. And I've pointed this out a bunch, but it doesn't seem like you're a conqueror if you're naked and not eating. 
Because famine is mentioned and nakedness is mentioned. It doesn't seem like you're more than a conqueror if you're being run through with a sword. It doesn't seem like you're more than a conqueror when you're being made fun of and persecuted and ridiculed for believing the Bible. That doesn't feel like being more than a conqueror, but the Bible says in all these things we are more than conquerors. Praise the Lord. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is rooted and anchored in the Christ and His grace. And so now I hang on to this hope that I have, and it's a blessed hope. As I wait, I wait for something that I have not yet seen. And that's the other point that I wanted you to see, is if you see it, then you've already got it. Christmas is the greatest example. You take Arwen, seven years old, wakes up every morning in the month of December. We have a little Advent calendar out. This is, this is a helpful, hopeful illustration, honestly, for your lives. I encourage Advent calendars with scriptures and fun like that. It's really good. December 1st, and you start, the Christmas tree is up, the lights are glowing. What does that do to a little kid? Well, what does it do to you? It still does it to me a little bit. I can't wait! I can't, I can't wait! Is it the presents? Not really. There's just... There is something blessed in the expectation, isn't there? The season and feeling of Christmas is the excitement of leading towards that day, correct? Part of the joy is the waiting. Jennifer will not let me give her her presents early, though I usually wind up doing it. This is the first year in our entire marriage that I waited until Christmas to give her her presents. And it, it is the hardest thing in the world, I don't know why, I can't stand waiting. And I'm like, ah, like just so she made me wait because for her, and she's right, I want to wait till the day that I'm supposed to get the present. And I, and I, love, the, I love the expectation and I love the build-up. Biblically, that is the Christian's life in hope. The build-up and the expectation is every day, the older I get, the closer to death I get, Every rattle in my lungs and every problem in my body is a pointer to an appointment with Christ. The closer you get to death, the more real this becomes. Has anybody ever almost had a car wreck and immediately reevaluated your relationship with Jesus? How many of you have had this experience? Anybody? I had an experience when I was a teenager where I thought I had missed the rapture. I've told you this story before. It's the most horrifying thing I think I've ever felt in my life. Oh, I, I fell asleep. It's the month of May. It's daylight until 8 p.m. Is I was in high school. I fell asleep in my clothes. I wake up. It looks like it's morning. It's actually dusk. And I think I've missed school. I get up. Cars are there. No parents are there. No family's there. Nobody's there. I know why. I'm living a life of sin and all of my righteous family members have been sucked up into the rapture and I've missed it. I'm trying to turn on the news because I'm expecting to see nuclear holocaust clouds. I didn't know what I... And I was trying to call people that I knew were Christians uh, so that if they answered the phone then I would know that I didn't miss it. It was a horrible, horrible feeling. I remember pacing up and down on a Merrick Street in Parkersburg saying, Dear God, I cannot go to hell. Now, 
Then my family came walking around the corner. They had all walked our dog Sparky, and I had missed that, and I had thought, anyway, it was really, it was funny. It's funny now. It was not funny then. There was a brief period I thought my heart was going to explode out of my chest because I, I missed it. That's what Spirit of Fear ministry videos will do to you in your childhood growing up watching all the, the rapture videos and the end of time stuff. And So anyway, I reevaluated my relationship with Jesus though. Those aren't always bad things. In fact, I think God does them to us on purpose. Hey, what are you doing down there? Just doing your own thing, right? Here's a little heavenly anxiety. Not the anxiety of the world, but a godly fear that says, wake up. Sometimes sermons do that. Sometimes you meet people and you're convicted of your sin. God does lots of things. Lots of things. As He lovingly disciplines His children. Go with me to Jeremiah 29. I've established what biblical hope is. I have hinted what the Christian life looks like. But because I said we want to specifically address the sense of hopelessness that people have presently in the church and outside the church, that things are really messed up and I've got children, I've got people saying things like, should we even have kids? Don't want them growing up in this. Not even sure how to define what this is, but just everything feels like a mess. We are about to read one of the most famous passages of Scripture. Non-Christians have heard this before. You see this in little placards on Facebook. You see it in posters in cheesy 90s uh, old Christian bookstore stuff. You, this is a famous passage of Scripture. But I want you to hear the context of it. Jeremiah is a prophet called by God to rebuke a nation that is running away from God. And he is as popular as you think he would be. He's called the weeping prophet because he wept over his country and he wept over their sin a lot. And nobody listened. His message was not popular. His message was, if you don't repent, God is going to judge you. They didn't listen. Not only did they not listen, Jeremiah is written at a time where there is great political turmoil. Assyria had been the king of the area for a long time, and now they have faded down and Babylon has taken over. Babylon is now the big guy on the block, and Israel is a little guy on the block, and they're trying to sidle up with Egypt, and they're trying to also play lip service to Babylon, and they're trying to play both sides of the fence. They're, they're in trouble. They're a small little nation, and these big kingdoms are around, and these kingdoms, Babylon starts inserting their kings to be uh, vassal kings over Israel. It's not a good time. And to make matters even more exciting, 
there are prophets all over Israel prophesying peace, prosperity, safety. Everything's fine. Everything's great. But but it's not. Jeremiah 29, I want you to read with me starting in verse 4. He's writing a letter. Oh, I didn't tell you the most important part. This letter won't make any sense. Okay. Most important part is this. Babylon comes in and they start taking people out of Jerusalem. They just start kidnapping them and taking them as prisoners and take them back to Babylon. Make them do whatever they want. They also took all the gold out of the temple. They they did all kinds of stuff. Well, there's about 10,000 exiles all the kings, uh, the king, his political surrounding people, his advisors, and all the important craftsmen, all the skilled people in Israel, we'll take them. We're going to take them back with us. And what he left, what the king left, was the dregs, so to speak, of Israel, the non-important people, which included Jeremiah. He's not, he's not there. He writes a letter to the folks that are in exile. And that's what we're about to read. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice who sent who where. God sent the exiles into Babylon just like He said that He would because they wouldn't listen. Listen to the rest of the letter. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Have you heard that before? That's the verse we lift out and use. Do you hear the context of this verse? This is not a verse that we just give to our college graduates, even though that's not wrong. This is a verse written to a people, the people of God, under the judgment of God, in exile, in captivity. There's a couple things I think that apply to us right now. What do we do if hope in God is a waiting expectancy for something that has not happened yet. 
This letter is describing a waiting expectancy for something that's going to happen. In their case, they get a time frame of 70 years. But if you're 43, when you get this letter, like, oh, well, let me do some math. Yeah, I'll be dead. I'll be, I'll be dead before this is over. If you've got a 7-year-old, Arwen, she'll be 77 and she may be dead. We don't know. She may not be dead. Do you, you get the point? 70 years is a long time. We don't get from God a time frame of the return of Christ. Intentionally, purposefully, run away from anybody who's got a time frame. Anybody has got a time frame, just run away from those people. They're out of their minds. We don't get a time frame. They did. But the principle here is the same. God has a future and a hope for us. So what do you do in the meantime? That's what I'm getting at. My whole point this morning, what do you do in the meantime? What do you do tomorrow? Well, I want you to look at verse 5. I've got five things that this text tells us. In verse 5, you are supposed to live and to plan and to work. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. You're supposed to work. You're supposed to live. You are supposed to act like there is a future. It is not based on the fact that you are no longer in Jerusalem where you want to be. It's not that you now have a temple that is, in essence, destroyed and I can't worship the way I want to. I, I've messed up. I need to turn back to God and I need to do what He's telling me to do. That, that's what's happening here in Jerusalem. That's what's happening to these people. I'm not doing it based on what I'm doing. God's telling me to, continue, to build houses. He's telling me to take wives. He's telling me to have children. He's telling me to take my children and give them away in marriage. He is in essence saying, live. Live your life. Live it for God. Do not give up hope in our current time and say, things are so messed up and it's nothing like the way I thought it would be, therefore I'm just going to wait until Jesus comes and gets me. That is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is saying, because God is coming to get me, and because I'm His child, and I'm living for His name, and for His glory, because He's got a purpose for me, I'm going to live, and build, and marry, and have children, and give my children away. We are going to plan for the future. We are going to think in terms of generations, not in terms of, this thing's over in 30 years. There's no way. The rapture's right around the corner. All of us have felt that, right? When you see the storming of the Capitol building, it causes you to think things that you would not normally think. What I'm telling you though is, imagine being a Christian in 1939, I believe it was, when Hitler invaded Warsaw. You saw panzers coming down the street blowing up your favorite bagel shop. It's over! 
Right? Imagine throughout world history the times that Christians have experienced crazy political upheaval. Here we still are. What if we're just in the middle of an upheaval, which we probably are, and what if God's got another 2,000 years on His clock for humans to exist on this planet before He comes? Will it have been much to His name and to His glory if you decide things like, can't have babies, don't want my kids to get married, hunker down, gather the wagons around us, it's us four and no more, shut the world out, pretend we don't live here, let's become Amish, those hats are cool. I like beards. No. We are supposed to work and build and grow. We are supposed to have babies. We are supposed to give our children away. We are not supposed to have a hope rooted in what we see around us. We're supposed to have a hope rooted in Christ. Think again what it would feel like if a bunch if all of us got scooped up and taken to Canada, heaven help us all. We got taken into Canada and we had to live there in exile. Not our home. Not our hometown. Doesn't feel right. Everything's messed up. That's exact. God's saying, I put you there. I am in charge of history. I'm in charge of what goes on. But this is what I want you, my people, to do. God is teaching us through passages like this that our hope is not in our circumstance right in front of us. It is in Him. Truly, it is in Him. We should be working. We should be planting. We should be planning. We should make plans for this church and for growth and for outreach. We should not be in the mode of batting down the hatches, hunker down, and let's just hope this blows over or we'll just have to deal with whatever comes our way and we'll just become smaller and smaller and more and more insignificant. No, the opposite of this is true. We are to be salt and we are to be light in the world and we should have an optimism not rooted in what I saw on Fox News or what I saw on CNN or what I saw on Twitter or what I saw wherever you see whatever it is you see about the news of the day, my hope is not in the White House. And my hope is not in the Supreme Court. And my hope is not in the Constitution. Even though these are great institutions and have caused great human flourishing. Instead, my hope is in Christ. And my, my hope is eternal. And it's not temporary. We need to rest in God's plan, even if it's hard, and not what we thought it would be. If I had it my way, I would pick up all four of my children and plant them in 1982 and let them grow up the way I did. That would be awesome. They could experience grunge when it came out in the 90s as teenagers as the Lord intended. 
That's what he intended for me. That's not what he intended for them. We have a future, and that future is in Christ. But the future, though, that God is letting them know about, if you notice, there's a couple other things in here, one of which is pray for the welfare of the city. Did you notice this? Seek the welfare of the city. So it's not just pray, it's seek it. It means I'm going to actively do everything I can to be a positive impact in my world, in my neighborhood, in my generation for the glory of God. In the welfare of the city, you'll find your welfare. You've got to be careful when we're doing direct parallels to Israel because we're not Israel. America is not Israel. I'm not making that comparison. This was a very specific time in history. I'm trying to get the principle out of Jeremiah 29 for us to see that you don't give up hope because things aren't the way you thought they would be. You don't give up hope because, oh my gosh, what's going on in the world? We don't give up hope. Our hope is in Christ. And that hope causes me not to hunker down, batten down the hatches. It causes me to live vibrantly and make plans and to press forward. Look at verse 12. And we're going to be wrapping up. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I do not take that parallel for God's going to do this in America. That's not what I'm doing with this verse. I'm doing it for us as individuals. I believe the application is for us as individuals that we seek God and find Him when we seek Him with all of our heart. This is not the time for us to just wistfully hope that things get better, but to actively hope. There is a difference Active hope involves prayer and building houses and planting gardens and having babies. Wistful, weak and fragile hope is a, I hope things get better, but I'm just going to hide in a closet and hopefully things get better. That's not the way that, that's not what Christians are called to do. We are called to act. We are called to pray. We are called to seek God. And that is what I think we should be doing. Be encouraged, church. We don't know when Christ is coming back, but we belong to Him and we are headed home soon, maybe. I don't know. Maybe we'll teach on the book of Revelation. That would actively scare everybody enough, right? Lee's excited. He wants dragons and fire and Sulfur and brimstone and all those fun teachings. Let's stand up. We're going to receive communion. If you did not get your 
thing, you can go out and get it now. We do have gluten-free out there as well. One of the powerful images of communion is that it is a declaration of our ongoing hope. That's what this is. It is a declaration that I belong to Christ because of what these elements represent. His broken body is the bread and the cup, the, the juice or the wine representing the blood of Jesus that seals a covenant between us and God and forgiveness and the wiping away of sin. And our hope is rooted in what He did, not in what we have done. You cannot earn your salvation. Taking communion doesn't make you a Christian. Taking a communion is a confession that I am a follower of Christ. I belong to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for the blessed hope that we're looking forward to in you. I thank you, Lord, that it serves as an anchor for our soul. God, I pray that we would live our lives hopeful in you and not hunker down, but we would vibrantly live expressing our faith and love and our hope in you. God, make us shine like lights, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Lord, we take communion today in light of the blessed hope and the eager expectation we have of your return, and we proclaim your death today and your resurrection. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Let's take this together. Lord, I pray you would go with us. I pray you would encourage our hearts. I pray that we would look close into your word this week. God, show, show us wonderful things from your law as we seek you this week. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen.